Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we examine how countries around the world have dealt with the legacies of authoritarian regimes. In order to explore that issue, we're fortunate to have with us today Pablo de Grave, a leading analyst of transitional justice, as it's called. Dr. de Grave is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transitional Justice Program at the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at the NYU School of Law. During 2012 to 2015, he was Special Rapporteur on the Promotion of Truth, Justice, Reparation, and Guarantees of Non-Recurrence in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN, and has also served in a variety of missions mandated by the UN's Human Rights Council. From 2001 to 2014, he was also Director of Research at the International Center for Transitional Justice. Before that, he'd been an associate professor in the philosophy department at the, at SUNY Buffalo, where he taught uh, ethics and political theory. He's lectured in many countries and universities across Europe and the Americas and has published extensively on transitions to democracy, democratic theory, and the relationship between morality, politics, and law. Among many other publications, he was writ he's written uh, a book called Transitional Justice and Development, another called Justice as Prevention, and uh, finally, the Handbook of Reparations from 2006. He's also been an advisor on justice issues to the World Bank and to many national initiatives, including truth commissions and various victims' organizations. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Pablo de Grave. Thank you for the invitation, John. I'm delighted to be talking with you. Great to be great to have you here. So um, perhaps we should first discuss the meaning of the notion of transitional justice for those who may not be familiar with it. Uh, I recall once telling a friend who worked in the State Department about you know work that I was doing related to the issue or the problem of transitional justice, and he looked at me a bit blankly. So it may not be familiar to everybody. What does it mean, and could you discuss some of the paradigmatic cases of transitional justice? Yeah, this is a perfect place uh, to begin, uh, John, because your experience uh, with your friend at the State Department, I must say, uh, I have had uh, similar ones, including at the Human Rights Council in Geneva, after its members had adopted a resolution creating a mandate precisely on the subject. And uh, some of the members that had voted in favor of the resolution didn't seem to be very clear about uh, what it was about. So I guess that the most general way of defining uh, the term transitional justice is by reference to the efforts that countries have made in order to deal with legacies of massive human rights abuses. And the originally massive human rights abuses that took place during authoritarian regimes. So the incoming, the successor regime, usually tried a variety of initiatives in order to uh, come to grips with uh, what is left in the wake of, uh, for example, the use of state institutions for purposes of uh, repression. And the field started not as the unfurling of positions that uh, were formally articulated in any theory. This is a field that started uh, uh, through practice by people, particularly in the countries of the Latin American Southern Cone, uh, trying to redress and to prevent violations that had taken place uh, during their corresponding dictatorships. 
So they tried the uh, uh, truth-telling exercises. They tried uh, to provide uh, different forms of reparations to victims. They also tried uh, at different times to use the criminal justice system in order to investigate, prosecute, and punish those that were responsible. And they tried a variety of measures that were preventive in intent and uh, had a lot to do with uh, the reform of institutions, particularly of those institutions that had uh, participated in the violations, uh, military and uh, paramilitary units, or institutions that had uh, failed to prevent uh, the violations uh, including, for example, the judiciary. So that's uh, a place to start. Uh, what countries try to do in order to redress uh, massive human rights violations. And then you asked about uh, some of the uh, paradigmatic examples. And uh, I mean, I would start uh, with uh, Argentina and Chile. But of course, uh, the field uh, grew very, very rapidly during the last uh, 30 to 35 years. And then uh, people are very familiar with uh, the South African case, uh, uh, particularly its uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. People are somewhat familiar with some dimensions of the Eastern and Central European cases after 1989. And now transitional justice as a model, as a model that involves these four elements, truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence, has become normalized. It is uh, uh, expected that countries that undergo different types of political transformations, now no longer the transformation from authoritarianism to democracy, but also the transition from conflict to peace, they are expected to implement uh, these set of measures. So it has become uh, quite popular. And quite accepted in the international arena. Uh, and you've been in some of the jobs that reflect that fact, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, with some amazement, uh, I confess, uh, anyone who is familiar with how difficult it is to achieve normative change at the international level has to be surprised about the fact that a set of practices that did not have a name in the late 90s, because uh, no one referred to this set of measures uh, using the term transitional justice until the early 2000s. A set of practices that didn't even have a name then now are the subject of so much use. Uh, that they have become really the subject of uh, such deeply entrenched uh, expectations, and uh, that uh, that is true even despite the very significant differences in the context where the model took shape, the post-authoritarian transitions, compared to the context in which that model is now more often than not, used, namely the post-conflict context. So think, for example, about the fact that today uh, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central African Republic, uh, Mali, are countries that are trying to implement uh, transitional justice measures despite the very deep differences between those countries and, for example, Chile and Argentina. 
uh, it is remarkable how quickly the model spread. So you've opened the door. I have to ask you, I mean, you've just described, as you say, a massive trans, uh, transformation or tra- transformation or transition in uh, normative thinking at the international level and how difficult that is. Why do you think that happened? So I, th- I think uh, a, a confluence of uh, several factors. One, of course, this uh, coincided with uh, the period that followed the Cold War, where when uh, human rights as a part of the international agenda acquired a centrality that it did not have before, or frankly, that it hasn't had since, because I think that those days, in many ways, sadly, are over. So the period in the late 90s and early 2000s was a period in my mind in which lots of things were possible regarding human rights and transitional justice was part of the human rights agenda that developed at the time. So this is one factor. Second, I think that once the post-authoritarian cases uh, were dealt with, as it were, people thought that the, uh, the very same model could be applied in the many post-conflict cases that were left in the wake of the Cold War and that for the first time seemed to be tractable. They seemed to be resolvable. But something had to be done in order to bring the resolution about. And transitional justice seemed to be a sort of ready-made recipe for that. And uh, I mean, I have to say that I have uh, some reservations about uh, that very, very quick uh, adoption of a model that was uh, designed for post-authoritarian transitions, Uh, the very quick adoption of the very same model uh, to contexts in which institutions were significantly weaker and in which the types of violations were also very different. But uh, nevertheless, the fact is that this is one of the factors that in my mind explain uh, the quick uh, uh, success of the model. And I think that a third uh, factor that one has to mention is that, of course, this coincided with a period of uh, increased ease in uh, communication and travel. In other words, uh, some dimensions of globalization uh, are also present in the diffusion of uh, the model. People learned from one another much more rapidly than before. It was much easier to uh, put meetings together when the South Africans were thinking about uh, their transition. They organized uh, two very important meetings in which uh, Argentinian and Chilean human rights uh, lawyers and activists were the main speakers. And part of the idea, of course, was to examine whether the model of transitional justice that had been adopted in the Latin American Southern Cone could be adapted to the South African situation. And this is just an example of the sort of diffusion that I am talking about. And this was only accelerated by the internet. So now the learning curve is incredibly, incredibly steep. And Everything that goes along with that, the field has become a field, and by that I mean a field both of academic study, but also of practice. So there is a profession now around transitional justice. There are masters and PhD programs. 
There are two specialized journals for people like you and I, John, who are interested in questions about the sociology of knowledge. Uh, the field has its own specialized encyclopedia, which I think is a very good marker of at least the aspiration of a field to become an autonomous one. And in 2012, the field got its very own. And of course, the academic activities involve significant exchanges between South and North. So I teach a seminar every year at NYU where more than half of my students are foreigners and they go back to their countries of origin and um, some of them will work in this area. So I think that there's an element of uh, globalization involved uh, here as well. Fascinating. Um, it is really an interesting development and one that, as you say, has had enormous ram ramifications in terms of you know who's involved and the fact that there's kind of a profession uh, of people who work in this field, and it is quite extraordinary. Um, so you've mentioned uh, the Argentinian and Chilean cases and the impact they had on South Africa. I mean, most people probably would say that the first Truth Commission was the South African um, people who are less familiar with this than you are, but, um, you know, and that had enormous impact, I think, uh, in this area, um, South Africa was perhaps because of the nature of the regime that was being, uh, deconstructed, you know, perhaps getting more world attention than what was going on, uh, in the Southern cone at, at that time. But, uh, you know, you've sort of suggested that the Truth Commission uh, model may or may not be uh, entirely adaptable in all situations. I wonder if you could talk about, uh, you know, to what extent was it appropriate to dealing with the South African past um, and to what extent is it applicable in other contexts? Yeah. So if I may, let me make a general remark first about uh, the challenges that arise from this uh, transposition of a model that was thought for a very strongly institutionalized uh, post-authoritarian transitions to weakly institutionalized uh, post-conflict uh, context. I think that uh, when the strength of the institutions in the post-authoritarian cases go a long way into explaining why the model with these four particular, particular elements made sense and why it worked well. And of course, one has to be modest about what working well meant. Uh, neither Chile nor Argentina were automatically, rapidly transformed uh, into paradises of the respect of the rule of law and uh, the paradise of uh, redress and reconciliation through the implementation of the measures. But nevertheless, I think that the implementation of the measures over time made a big difference uh, at very different levels, but one can perhaps point, put the point in very general terms that they contributed to restoring a certain type of trust, of civic trust, basic trust in the institutions of the state and that they affirmed certain basic principles about the rule of law, they drew a line between a past of violations and a present and a future of the aspiration of respect for more lawful relationships, <coughs> both between citizens and particularly between citizens and state institutions. The, when you think about the institutions in those countries, it is true that both Argentina and Chile had institutions that were horizontally and vertically 
very strong horizontally in the sense that the institutions of each state could make itself pre- could make themselves present in every corner of the state territory. Now, like everywhere else, it doesn't mean that you could get equally good services in Patagonia, in Buenos Aires. But that was not because of lack of capacity, but as it usually happens, because of decisions. So there was national coverage uh, of a very, very strong type in both countries. And similarly, from a vertical standpoint, most of the crucial spheres of interaction between citizens and state institutions were already regulated by means of laws. Laws which, of course, were breached uh, uh, completely during the authoritarian period, but there was uh, a legal regime that could be recovered and that was not full of empty holes. When you move from a context like that to a context like the DRC or the Central African Republic, you are, of course, moving into countries in which that description of the institutional reality is no longer true. The institutions of the DRC and the the CAR are not horizontally strong. They, They cannot make themselves present and that they haven't been present in large swaths of the territory of each country. And vertically, of course, these are countries that have lots of legal loopholes where the law is simply silent. Lots of issues, very important issues with respect to which the law has not spoken. It has never been established. And I think that that makes a difference. Not surprisingly, in those contexts, it is much more difficult to achieve results via the implementation of a set of measures that presupposed institutions that were more or less strong and that had certain capacities that cannot be taken for granted everywhere. Now, with respect to truth commissions in particular, I think that the idea of a truth commission was born out of the desire to respond to the basic mode of operation of authoritarian regimes, which in the southern cone were in the habit of illegally detaining and disappearing people. And therefore, the first commission as it is now understood in the field, was not the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but the commission that was established in Argentina, the CONADEP, which was a commission specifically tasked with investigating the fate of the disappeared, because this was the primary mode of violation of the predecessor regime. So because the mode of operation was shrouded in silence and it took place under a veil of secrecy, the Truth Commission model made perfect sense. And the task of the Truth Commission is very clear. It is fact-finding both in the sense of clarifying particular cases, what happened with particular individuals, and also victim tracing. Where are they or where are their remains? Because we need them. In the cases of conflict, the basic task of a truth commission become a bit more complicated. Uh, open conflict, open warfare is open. There is no secrecy there. Uh, Both state and non-state actors attack one another in full daylight. And therefore, the basic task of a truth commission changes. 
And not surprisingly, then the fact-finding and victim-tracing functions of the original truth commissions have been substituted for other functions that have much more to do with analysis of root causes of conflict. And while that is crucially important, following recommendations having to do with addressing complicated, sometimes historical uh, difficulties having to do with the origins of conflict becomes much more difficult. And therefore, the implementation of Truth Commission recommendations becomes much more challenging in these new contexts of operation. So I hasten to add my argument is not that it is useless to try to establish a truth commission in a conflict situation, but that their function and what can be expected from them has to accommodate the contextual factors. And if I may, one comment relating to the earlier part of our conversation, there are great advantages to the professionalization of a field having to do with the speediness of the transmission of information, a certain type of standard setting and quote-unquote quality control, which is all to the good. But with professionalization also comes the danger of a tendency to replicate, and that is to turn the basic question that the Argentinian and Chilean activists that were originally working on this, which was how do we best satisfy the rights of victims to truth, justice, reparations, and non-recurrence. The question now becomes, what is the most efficient way of establishing a truth commission, a prosecutorial mechanism, a reparations program, and uh, very familiar measures of uh, uh, non-recurrence? In other words, the project becomes a bit more technocratic, a bit more uh, concentrated on institutional replication rather than on the satisfaction of rights. It becomes less sensitive to the particularities of the context, and I think that a price is paid for that. Thanks. That's very helpful for understanding, you know, the various things that truth commissions can and perhaps to some extent can't do. Uh, but of course, it has become a kind of tried and true mechanism that people typically want to reach for uh, in these kinds of circumstances where there's some you know, nefarious past that needs to be dealt with, or people, some people think it needs to be dealt with. Um, but uh, we've talked about your mandate or your remit uh, as special rapporteur for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, and that it has these four parts. And as you know, I have a particular interest in the in the reparations basket, so to speak. Yes. Um, and I wonder, you know, if you could explain a little bit. I mean, I, I, I trying to remember the name of the principles that the UN adopted for uh, uh, dealing with, you know, past injustices. Um, it's this very long title about the right to reparation and restitution, and it has very many different kind of facets. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what those various facets are and to what extent you think it's been successful, the adoption of these principles has been successful in actually getting people some kind of reparation. And of course, reparation, I always say, when it's singular, it means many things. When it's right. when it's plural, i.e. the word reparations, it usually just means money. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the meaning of the term and how well the adoption of these principles has actually worked for people. 
So, John, first I would like to start by uh, praising both your old uh, article and uh, the subsequent book on uh, the topic, from which uh, I learned a lot many, many years uh, ago. But Thank I think you. it's a wonderful discussion about some of the complex issues that are involved uh, in trying to do reparations. So after many, many years of discussion, both in the former Human Rights Commission and subsequently in the Human Rights Council, what originally were called the Van Boven Principles, uh, with the last name of uh, the rapporteur that was in charge of uh, drafting uh, the first uh, version then the Bassiuni principles uh, after the, uh, the last name of the second rapporteur that took uh, that project over. Eventually, what uh, in short, uh, because of, as you say, the very long title became known as the basic principles, uh, were adopted uh, in 2005. And uh, they, I guess that for the sake of our discussions, the important point to realize is that the international community asserted in those principles that the violations of both human rights law and international humanitarian law gave rise to rights to redress and reparation. And that in the case of uh, reparation, uh, there were five uh, categories, five important categories of uh, reparation. One having to do with uh, monetary compensation, one having to do with uh, rehabilitation, and not just uh, rehabilitation of, for example, in terms of medical conditions uh, produced by the violations, but also the rehabilitation of people's good name and legal records, uh, for instance. So this would be part uh, of what would fall under the category of rehabilitation. The third was restitution. So in cases of uh, expropriation, for example, a form of reparation is, uh, of course, the restitution to the rightful owner of the property that had been expropriated. And then two very broad categories in the basic principles having to do with what the document calls satisfaction and guarantees of non-recurrence. And these refer to an open-ended set of measures whose purpose was to provide some degree of satisfaction, peace of mind, uh, uh, restoration of uh, a life project, uh, but also to provide not just to the victims, but to society as a whole, uh, a set of measures concentrating on institutional reforms that uh, aimed at diminishing the likelihood that the violations would take place again. So this was an exercise in the disaggregation of what reparations could consist of. The motivating principle was, in a certain sense, the principle of full restitution. In other words, to restore the victim to the situation ex ante, to the situation before the violation took place. But of course, uh, uh, being flexible, because when you have a huge universe of victims and the violations of a certain magnitude, this becomes uh, an ideal, a guiding, uh, 
uh, ideal more than uh, a criterion of uh, effectiveness. Uh, to be honest, uh, I don't think that there's any country that can claim that it has achieved that degree of success in its uh, reparations efforts. And nevertheless, I want to say that there are countries that have achieved some significant success in uh, trying to provide redress to victims, even if it falls short of the principle of full restitution. Great. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, I have to say, as I've thought about what you've been saying, um, I... I confess, I sort of feel like that we in the United States now are in the process, involved in one of these processes. I mean, Donald Trump, um, in many ways, helped to um, you know dismantle the idea that the United States was this exceptional nation, that there was this business about American exceptionalism, uh, in the sense that he, I think, you know, rode roughshod over the rule of law, had very little respect for the Constitution, actually no respect. Um, and, um, you know, there have been many questions. They've, to some extent, died down, but there have been many questions about how we should deal with Donald Trump uh, now that he's out of office. And some people would say that's how you deal with him. You get him out of office and that's that. Uh, but we are about to embark on this uh, second impeachment trial uh, which seems clear already that um, he's not going to be convicted in the Senate. They just don't have the votes. Um, so I wonder how you, you know, you, you have a very international, very broad kind of uh, basis uh, on which to look at the United States situation. And, and uh, you know, I mean, every place is exceptional in the sense that it has its kind of unique trajectory. But um, I wonder if you could, you know, let us in on how you think about, uh, you know, what's happened here. Obviously, it's got its own special circumstance, circumstances and um, what you think, you know, we should do and what do you think is going to happen given the likely failure of the second impeach impeachment trial? So I spent a bit of time talking about the importance of transitional justice being sensitive to context and in some ways pointing out that the professionalization of the field which involved its formalization brings with it the dangers of mere replication. Uh, organizational sociologists have a wonderful name for this. They call it uh, isomorphic mimicry, and obviously not referring to transitional justice in particular, but to the generalized uh, tendency to think uh, that the very same institutional formations would work uh, equally well regardless of circumstances, which of course doesn't make much sense. So everything that I say in response to your question will be colored by this uh, conviction that uh, whatever is done by way of transitional justice should be sensitive to context, including not just uh, the institutional setup, but also, the, for example, cultural preferences and uh, cultural norms. Having said that, I have devoted the last 25 years of my life to the notion that past human rights violations matter, that people do not forget that the legacies of the violations uh, uh, remain and uh, they may be transformed and get manifested intergenerationally in different ways, but they do not simply disappear. And I think that there is evidence of this uh, from very, very different countries and very different uh, contexts. In Spain, people are still seeking justice for violations that took place during the civil war and the dictatorship. 
in countries where leaders say the best thing that we can do is to forgive and forget. People eventually rebel against this idea and try to get some recognition of the violations uh, that uh, took place. In other words, I am very firmly committed to the idea that massive human rights violations should not remain inconsequential, that the past matters. And I am not American, but I have spent uh, 40 years of my life in this country. And I am familiar enough with aspects of his history, which become manifested and highlighted in a big way, in a big and public way on particular occasions. And I do think that this is a country that has failed to reckon with a history of racism that did not end with abolition, but whose legal consequences continued until just a few decades ago by way of redlining laws, differential access to mortgages, obviously different access to a a variety of services which are paid for by public money and through taxation. So this is a country, I think, that in the midst of all of this, held up the idea of exceptionalism without paying sufficient attention to whether the idea of citizenship, the idea of being a fellow partner in a shared political project, whether this was an idea that had the same degree of concrete reality for every one of its members. And therefore, I think that this is a country which would benefit tremendously from a reckoning with its own history. Now, what is the precise shape in which that should take place? Of course, we can discuss, but uh, I think in general, my sense is that it would be very, very important for the country to engage in this. And in that respect, Trump while very important because of the role that he played in instigating not just what happened on the 6th of February, but long before, even before he was elected, instigating a certain type of divisiveness in the society. He's... important, and he deserves a lot of attention. But I also think that it would be a huge mistake to think that Trump is a fluke. Trump and his success, his electoral success, and his still very, very strong following, rests on decades and decades of deliberate decision-making on the part of the Republican Party, but also on the part of the Democratic Party. And in that sense, it would be a mistake to think that, for example, uh, even if uh, one succeeded in establishing criminal cases against uh, Trump, that the problem would be solved. I think that we are dealing here with a significantly broader and deeper problem that calls, as the transitional justice model does, not just for the use of the criminal justice system, but also for the use of truth-telling and truth-seeking mechanisms in order to socialize truths that the majority of the country 
have not been particularly interested in. And there is the question which uh, is of interest to you, I know, um, from uh, uh, your own writings about uh, what to do with the economic inequalities that came about uh, as a result and as part and parcel of this history of racism uh, that is uh, so deeply embedded uh, in American history. Um, I guess, you know, my own view recently has been that what we need in the United States is something like the or a rerun, if you like, of the Kerner Commission of the late 1960s, mm-hmm. uh, a congressionally, you know, mandated panel of experts uh, from various fields, history, economics, etc., cetera, uh, trying to understand, you know, the extent to which contemporary inequalities are a product of uh, past injustices, obviously slavery and so-called Jim Crow. Um, but, you know, to some degree, these things, uh, you know, the sort of health gap, for example, between blacks and whites has been, relatively speaking, getting better in recent years. Um, that's not to say that, you know, black life expectancy is as, uh, as great or as long as white life expectancy, but the gap is narrow, has been yeah. narrowing. So it's not as if these problems, you know, continue uh, to the same degree of uh, seriousness as they, you know, have had historically, they have changed over time. And so, you know, my feeling is that if you can get people to, you know, sit down and talk about uh, the relative significance of the historical past and the, you know, essentially the present, um, you know, it might uh, open the door to understanding what policies would, you know, properly address these, uh, these inequalities, these deep, you know, these deep injustices. I mean, I don't think it's the case that just achieving uh, economic equality, not that that's uh, in view, but I, I think there's more to this, obviously, than simply um, the economic inequalities, however severe and damaging those are. So I wonder, I mean, and it's not exactly a truth commission, but it's a kind of commission of inquiry that has, you know, bipes, that, that old uh, thing, bipartisan um, support. And, and indeed, you know, it, it seems to me real progress on these issues requires some kind of, you know, mandate from the top, from the center that's based on some kind of, you know, serious inquiry into the origins of these inequalities. Uh, Sorry to go on, but uh, I wonder what you might say about that. So I think that here the moment is such that it would be good to adopt a multiplicity of measures attacking the challenges from multiple angles. I think that there is something important about uh, a centrally constituted and authorized uh, commission to investigate uh, a certain set of uh, events even if they happen to be historically distant or temporarily long-lasting, the sort of uh, imprimatur and uh, signal of seriousness that is involved in the establishment of uh, an official body, I think, uh, is important. At the very same time, I think that this is a country that has... uh, increasingly uh, low levels of trust uh, in the center, in the political center, that is uh, that has reached uh, a degree of polarization where I am not sure how convincing it would be and how effective it would be for people in the heartland to listen to the conclusions of a commission that operates remotely and that is run completely by federal bureaucrats or elected uh, officials. Let's not forget uh, 
that here, as in many other countries, uh, the legislature is the least uh, trusted branch uh, of government. The country is very large and very diverse. There are very different histories in the relationship between uh, uh, racial groups, uh, not just between North and South, but uh, amongst, uh, uh, to put it this way, micro-regions within each of those uh, areas. So I think that there is also a need for local initiatives that would work uh, at the problem in a bottom-up way as well. And then the challenge would be how to connect uh, those two sets of truth-telling exercises. But I think that both of them have something to offer to the country, and I doubt that either in the absence of the other, would be a sufficiently persuasive and sufficiently compelling to people generally. So I tend to think that uh, you need here a sort of novel approach to the question of uh, truth. We also have to keep in mind that this is yet another context in which the task of a commission of this sort would not be to remove a veil of secrecy under which institutions operated. All of this happened very publicly. So I think that a good part of the task here is not so much the discovery, but the socialization of truth. And a commission composed of uh, federal bureaucrats at a distance, I doubt is the best vehicle for the socialization of truth that needs to take place uh, in this country. Again, it will be an important component, but I don't think that it could on its own carry sufficient weight right well suffice it to say we have a long way to go because most of these initiatives either at the top or at the bottom are not particularly in sight although there are certain uh promising initiatives in the south and elsewhere uh that for example susan neiman has recently written about absolutely Um, so let me uh take that opportunity to wind things up I uh, really appreciate Pablo de Graef coming and sharing his insights about processes of transitional justice and their relevance to the current situation in the United States. I also want to thank Risto Voinoff for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay, who provided the theme music for our uh, podcast. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks, Pablo. Thank you so much, John. Thank you very much. Great to have you.